0: Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Steve Winowich. Steve is the Director of Clinical Bioengineering with the Artificial Heart Program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and he is also the COO of Vital Engineering, which uh, we'll learn a little bit more about as we proceed with this discussion. Steve, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: This is uh, going to be an interesting discussion because in prior podcasts we've talked with lots of scientists who are developing some very interesting and innovative uh, therapies. And what uh, Steve and his team bring to this whole area of regenerative medicine is a bridge between engineering and clinical medicines, principally in the use of ventricular assist devices as it relates to Heart uh, transplants and supporting six heart- sick hearts until they recover. Uh, Steve, uh, just give us a brief introduction to your program and uh, and the role of uh, your team in this uh, very important uh, uh, regenerative medicine process.
1: Sure, I'll give you a brief overview. Uh, we use uh, a broad spectrum of mechanical circulatory support technologies, uh, specifically ventricular assist devices, uh, to support patients that are suffering from end-stage heart failure three primary reasons for support are bridge to transplant that is supporting uh, uh, an end-stage heart failure patient that is listed for transplant until a suitable donor organ is found second would be uh, in terms of recovery uh, supporting a patient temporarily until the uh, uh, native heart recovers and then ultimately removing the device and third Uh, there's uh, some movement towards what we call destination therapy which is the chronic application of mechanical circulatory support technologies. Uh, At the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center we are probably across the boundaries of of those three spectrums. We're supporting somewhere between 40 and 50 patients annually. Uh, Pediatric patients as young as four or five months old and then to the elderly 70, give or take 70 years old. We have uh, a team, a very large team in fact, one of the most uh, uh, organized groups in the world where now many institutions outside of Pittsburgh are beginning to model their program and that program really has three uh, 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 pieces uh, which are coupled to make one unit of artificial heart. One is the cl- the clinical piece our surgeons, cardiologists and other uh, medical clinicians. Second are nurses and third, uh, the one which I'm most familiar Is the bioengineer the bioengineer the 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 mechanical heart program has now six bioengineers, three nurses, a nurse practitioner, and a broad spectrum of graduate students, probably in the on the order of 25 to 30, that provide round-the-clock coverage for our patients that are supported by ventricular assist device technologies.
0: We've, in some prior podcasts, talked about ventricular assist devices. Just so that uh, all our listeners are on the same page, can you uh, just briefly describe what a ventricular assist device is and how it's used?
1: Sure. Ventricular assist devices are connected in series with the native heart and, in fact, take over most of the function that the native heart typically provides. We have opportunities to use left ventricular assist devices, and or right ventricular assist devices. Commonly, a left ventricular assist device is connected to the heart through the apex of the left ventricle. So blood that normally flows into the left ventricle is ejected through the aortic valve into the systemic circulation. In the case where a left ventricular assist device is implanted, a hole in the apex is cored of the LV and a cannula inserted into the LV apex leads blood into a mechanical pump. A variety of pumps exist. Pulsatile pumps, pneumatic pumps, electromechanical pumps, and now rotary blood pumps. Regardless of the type of pump, blood will flow into the VAD and then the mechanical pump will eject it into the ascending aorta. On the right side, commonly blood flows to the device from a cannula that's inserted into the right atrium and blood is pumped to the pulmonary artery. So... The native heart remains in the body, but one or two pumps can be implanted to assist the heart, unlike the total artificial heart where the native heart is removed and replaced with uh, mechanical ventricles.
0: Okay, thank you. Now, again, you made reference to this before, but just to make sure that uh, all our listeners are following this discussion, uh, you have pointed out that the applications of these devices are as I understand it, predominantly have been a bridge to a transplant. So, if someone has a sick heart and the the only applicable, or the best applicable therapy is a heart transplant, the chances of finding a suitable organ at that time is probably close to zero. So, the clinical team would use one of these devices to bridge that patient to a heart transplant. Correct?
1: Correct. That's the most common application. In the United States, on an annual basis, Approximately two thousand possibly two thousand two hundred heart transplants are performed each year. Yet, if you look at the the scientific data, some forty or fifty thousand patients could benefit from a heart transplant. That being said, uh, there's a a supply demand issue here, and uh, patients that are in need of mechan- in need of heart transplants typically wait a very long time. These devices can be used to bridge them until a suitable organ is found which brings up then destination therapy even with using devices as a bridge there is a a, a large cohort of patients for which an organ will never be found it, it is in these candidates where we can then apply the chronic technologies the long-term technologies to support them uh, uh, on, on a long-term basis
0: and then of course there's these intermediate case again that you referenced earlier that in certain select instances I understand that the clinical team can use one of these devices to give a sick heart arrest, the heart regenerates, you can remove the ventricular assist device and take them off the transplant list.
1: Correct. We've had some experience with that, and we're beginning to learn more and more uh, which patients are suitable and will have positive outcomes. Ultimately, if we can uh, prevent the patient from needing a transplant or at least delay the need for a transplant, that's the best possible uh, scenario for, for a particular individual. But yes, there are certain cases where we feel at the time of implant that the pump will eventually be removed and we will be able to recover the heart.
0: Do you have an approximate number of patients that have benefited from that particular therapy?
1: Historically, in our experience, I would estimate somewhere around 25 patients have been recovered.
0: That's amazing. Now, for our listeners, I also want to refer to some prior podcasts. Uh, we've uh, had the pleasure of having Dr. Cormos uh, on an early podcast, and he's uh, shared uh, some of these initiatives from the clinical perspective. Uh, we've recently had Dr. Weirden on a podcast, and he has uh, talked about this from the pediatric perspective that uh, Mr. Winowich has just made reference to. And we've had Dr. Borovitz, who has shared Uh, his uh, bioengineering work and his early pioneering studies that related to these particular devices. And I recall that Dr. Borovitz once showed me a photograph of the uh, support system for one of the original VADs, which was, uh, I think, about the size of a washing machine.
1: Correct. About 400 pounds, the systems that we began using in, in the mid to late 80s Weighed somewhere in the in the area of four hundred pounds, and were really geared towards use in an i c u setting at that time. The number of candidates for transplant was not very high; the average waiting time. Uh, that uh, somebody would be listed uh, in terms of finding a suitable donor heart may have only been 7 or 14 days. So the goal in developing these technologies at the outset was not necessarily related to patient mobility or sending patients home or chronic support. It was getting them through that 7 or 14 days until a suitable donor organ could be found.
0: And so there's been a lot of uh, pioneering work, uh, both with your team and with a lot of uh, commercial firms Give us a very brief characterization of what that 400 pound monster of in the past looks like now.
1: The 400 pound monster now in, in some cases is the size of your iPod. Uh, small uh, electromechanical systems, controllers that sit outside the body and in fact in many cases can be fully implanted within the body without breaking the, the, the skin barrier. Large systems, heavy systems, that limit limited mobility have now all but vanished. largest systems that exist today are approximately fifteen, twenty pounds, probably not much different than the size of a, of a VCR player or, or a CD player, uh, which allow patients to live a reasonable quality of life. Our aim upon implanting a, a, a ventricular assist device is immediate to begin rehabilitation, uh, patient recovery, and ultimately, Uh, send that family member along with the patient to live in the home environment because we recognize that for those quality of life reasons and for general clinical reasons the best place for that patient to be is at home.
0: Yes, I've actually had the pleasure of having uh, several of your patients uh, sit in my office with their ventricular assist device uh, doing what it was intended to do so it's an incredible incredible testimony to to, uh, the entire team that uh, has moved this technology forward and makes it uh, sort of an everyday occurrence. So our discussion at this point has been a uh, sort of a characterization of the system if I can use those terms and uh, you are a bioengineer and the team that you described before is uh, to a large extent bioengineers or bioengineer trainees and uh, an important cadre of uh, nurses as well. Tell us how this, about this marriage between a, a very well-renowned clinical team and now what is a very well-renowned bioengineering team that work together to make these things happen.
1: Well, we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to have the relationship with the McGowan Institute and the University of Pittsburgh School of Engineering, which we have essentially coupled into the clinical program which has enabled the bioengineer to become involved in what I would say is the day-to-day management of a patient. And the primary responsibility for the bioengineer is to provide that link between the technical components, the technical feedback that a mechanical circulatory support device provides and the clinical, the clinical management of the patient. So our team of engineers work hand-in-hand with physicians, with nurses, in understanding uh, what is happening day to day on a day to day basis uh, in that clinical environment?
0: so I think this is uh, perhaps a unique partnership. Uh, uh, you indicated earlier that there are other uh, facilities around the world that are starting to follow your leadership, but it's certainly a pioneering partnership uh, for certain, I believe
1: Oh without question, without question. I think when the program evolved back in the late eighties. I think under the vision of Doctors Cormos, Dr. Griffith, uh, Dr. Borowitz, you know, my understanding is they felt that this technical expertise was of great value in the setting of the intensive care unit, in the setting of the step-down units, and in in carrying the technology forward. Having somebody there at the bedside, dedicated to the the, the technical components, I think has been has been critical. The uh, the team I think adds a lot of value in that. By having the technical resources there, it enables the physicians and the nurses to focus purely on the clinical environment. I think regardless of the technology, when we run into hurdles, I think people in general have a tendency to blame the technology. And in in this situation with the mechanical circulatory support device, if we run into some hurdles, uh, the engineer being there can rule out any technical problem immediately, and focus the attention of the physicians and or the nurses uh, down another pathway and in that case to allow the, the, the clinical team to speed up its therapy and and, and perhaps uh, alleviate some of the issues that may have been related or the complications that could arise if those situations were prolonged.
0: So we mentioned earlier that many of these patients go home. How does the, uh, the bioengineer and, and your overall team uh, interact mm-hmm. with somebody who's not at the hospital?
1: Sure. Well, I can actually give a basic overview of the bioengineer from the time we identify a patient. Uh, I I think most would recognize that uh, in coming into a hospital and becoming a candidate for a mechanical circulatory support device, uh, most people and or their families have very little background. So the first step between the engineers and the nurses is really to introduce the concept to the patients and their families prior to an implant ever taking place. It's it's It can be troublesome uh, depending upon the patients and, and their condition. Nevertheless, a good bit of information is exchanged at the outset. From that point, the engineer uh, is responsible for all of the technologies that are in the hospital right now, The the applications of devices that we use, some 14 different technologies, making sure they're all in working order, they're all calibrated and the physicians have access to whatever they need. And upon knowing that an implant is going to occur, mobilize very quickly and uh, provide that support in the perioperative phase. So the engineers see patients prior to implant. They are involved in the actual implant itself, assisting with management of the technology intraoperatively, and then immediately in the postoperative phase, uh, remain at the bedside following surgery for at least 24 and perhaps 36 hours. Once the patient stabilizes at 36 hours, The engineers typically make rounds on an hourly or every other hour, uh, checking on the device, the performance of the device, and in fact, optimizing its performance when necessary. Again, working hand in hand with the physicians. So this interface and interchange with patients and their families and all of these different phases puts the engineer and the nurses, in fact, with the patients and their families quite a bit. And they develop a, a strong rapport what we've moved towards once the patients come out of surgery, stabilize a little bit, is we begin to perform the training exercises, the teaching that they need to undergo with them, their caregivers, so that they can live in an outpatient environment safely, spend several days working with them, giving them the clinical information and the technical information, the emergency information that they need to function in that outpatient setting, and the, inf- and the capability of maintaining a level of contact which if they have any questions, problems, or situations that arise that make them that give them some concern or make them feel uncomfortable uh, that we can address immediately. We have at least one engineer on call all times for ventricular assist devices. We have one nurse on call all times for ventricular assist devices. And we have a second engineer on call around the clock to perform any type of patient transport. Uh, We work very closely with the STAP medevac, then have performed somewhere between six and 800 uh, emergency transports of either intraortic balloon patients or uh, ventricular assist device patients, more often than not regionally.
0: Now, it's clear that uh, this program has been very successful here. I understand that you, uh, you've exported uh, both your services as well as your technology to other places around the world.
1: Correct. Actually, what we have done is taken the concept of the mechanical circulatory support program, the artificial heart program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and turned it into a company which we call Vital Engineering that is housed within uh, a UPMC subsidiary called Biotronics. Biotronics has several service arms, perfusion services, uh, asset management, biomed services, and some IT services, of which Vital Engineering is a partner. Vital Engineering then was able to take what we have, the expertise that we've developed, and offer that expertise out into the real world. Our clients are typically other institutions, clinical sites, that are looking to develop mechanical heart programs or device manufacturers, those from industry that can capitalize or benefit from the expertise that we've gained uh, by working in the field.
0: So I believe your export of technology and support of other programs is rather extensive. How extensive has it been?
1: The clinical support services have uh, been provided all over the world, performed cases from Japan to Tel Aviv. Now so We now support several institutions in the United States, both pediatric and adult cardiovascular surgery centers. On the industry side, we work with uh, I would say 80% of the the major mechanical circulatory support device manufacturers providing surgical training, clinical or technical support, and in fact, because of the expertise, we now beyond the skills or the the services we provide internationally, our people, the University of Pittsburgh engineers, our McGowan Institute uh, researchers have now migrated out uh, into the field, working at other sites. Uh, working with the FDA. We have the lead engineer that trained with our, uh, an engineer who trained with our team is now the lead engineer at the University of Miami. Another one of our engineers is running the program in Spokane. Uh, Several of our engineers are working with device manufacturers. One is uh, working with the FDA. So uh, we're very fortunate to have an opportunity to build through our students uh, a great level of expertise that's been of, of, of great value and benefit to them and to the field of mechanical circulatory support and that we've made as a team and as a team, as as former team members a huge impact into what I would say uh, benefits patient outcomes.
0: It's certainly been a, from my perspective, a very uh, productive partnership between uh, what you do and with the bioengineering training program. You must have several dozen PhD level students that uh, participate in actively in your clinical program?
1: Certainly. We have, of the 30-some-odd graduate students, I would estimate that probably 20 are Ph.D. candidates. We have a few masters candidates and a handful of of technicians, uh, undergrads, very talented undergrads, who are looking to pursue uh, ultimately graduate work. So we bring them in early, give them some opportunity to get exposure to the clinical environment some exposure to the technologies themselves so that at the point where they make that next transition beyond getting their bachelor's degree we can immediately integrate them into the program and uh, have them at a level where they're confident comfortable dealing with patients the the critical situations that we encounter and having had a chance to gain some of the what i will call clinical savvy uh... all of us as engineers uh, have limited opportunity to develop that clinical expertise uh, within the School of Engineering. There are uh, you know, very few classes in, in you know, medical care and, and medicine itself. So we get actually, we, we are fortunate enough to work in an, in an environment with the physicians where we can learn this firsthand.
0: One uh, story I'll share with you and uh, with our listeners is that I, recently had the opportunity to uh, discuss with a, a young man who just completed his PhD in bioengineering why he chose this particular institution and he said it was because of the clinical artificial heart program his interest was in medical devices he said quote There was no other place in the world where he could have gotten the experience he got uh, through your program and his bioengineering training
1: no question about it it's it's very unique and offers a a wonderful opportunity for for any graduate level student, for any researcher that's looking to integrate themselves into the environment which allows them to work hand in hand with physicians and with researchers and that translational medicine uh, I think is a unique feature where they have the opportunity to work directly in the lab and carry those technologies into the clinical environment and in fact use those technologies in the clinical environment and ultimately and I think most would say the bottom line is is having a positive impact on the patients. I think there is nothing more rewarding than having a patient or their family following mechanical circulatory support or their transplant or recovery coming up and, and offering a thank you or writing a letter that although their experience and their surgeries were quite challenging and difficult that, in many cases, a, a blessing to have the mechanical circulatory support team around and provide that coverage and enabling them to move on and live a, a very high-quality life.
0: So, this has been a very in-depth description of the, the Clinical Artificial Heart Program. I believe that you uh, are also applying some of these uh, skills and experiences to uh, other organ systems and other problems.
1: True. Through vital engineering, uh, many uh, doors have opened and opportunities have been presented where we can either begin to develop expertise or share our expertise. Uh, some of those examples include other artificial organ groups, such as the bioartificial liver, the artificial lung, and uh, a broad spectrum of other technologies that have some high-tech interface. We've used, uh, we've worked with uh, some of the robotic surgeries, the digital stethoscope. Uh, there are a quite a broad array of high-tech or advanced devices which are making their way into the clinical environment that require some sort of biomedical interface. And we in- expect and anticipate that this will continue to grow such that vital engineering and, in fact, the artificial heart program will likely no longer be just an artificial heart program, more than likely an artificial organ program.
0: Steve, I'd like to uh, thank you for uh, sharing with us this uh a fabulous endeavor. Uh, As we said earlier, I think it's a a very unique and certainly pioneering marriage of uh, bioengineering, with a very important and uh, significant clinical program. We'll post on the uh, podcast website some links to Vital Engineering and to the Clinical Artificial Heart Program uh, if you have interest in exploring that uh, in more detail. Uh, As we conclude, I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, We cannot diagnose uh, medical problems via the Internet, uh, but we certainly welcome your suggestions in terms of uh, future podcasts. Uh, We can be reached at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And as we conclude, I'd like to say thanks to the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring these podcasts. Best wishes until we meet in two weeks for another interesting interview. Thank you.